The following audio is from Central Christian Church, located in Portales, New Mexico. To connect with Central, go to centralwired.org.
Good morning. You know, there's a song we used to sing. I am not my own. I've been bought by blood. That's true. And that's what we commemorate when we come to communion. We have been bought by blood. What we're actually about to do is partake of what's known as a covenant meal. Now, in the ancient world, a covenant was a lot more serious than a signed contract or an agreement. It was typically regarded to last until death. And it involved a number of different elements. Typically, a covenant was made between a a patron or someone of means and someone with lesser means. And what was happening was that the person who was the patron or the one with the resources was promising protection or provision of some sort. And the other person, in turn, was promising allegiance service at whatever level was demanded by the by the patron. And so in order to accomplish this covenant, there were several things that went into it. In fact, uh, it was called cutting a covenant because it was not a, a convenience. It was a lifetime commitment. And so it could only be broken by death. And so in order to signify that, the first thing that happened was that there was an animal that was sacrificed and cut in half. And then the two covenant makers would walk between the two halves. That was to signify not only that they would not break that covenant except by death, but it was also to signify their own death. From this point forward, they were no longer two people. They were joined as one. And then the animal was prepared as a major portion of a covenant meal. And they partook of that animal and ate, signifying that they were being nourished by the the same source. And then they would feed each other, signifying their dependence upon each other. And then to further signify their unity, they would cut their palm or their wrist and they would mingle their blood together. And then they would take some of that same blood and drip it into a goblet of wine and swirl it and then they each would partake to signify their unity even to the point of blood. Sounds a lot like a marriage ceremony, doesn't it? Two families on either side of the church, the bride and groom walk between them, having made promises that can only be broken by death. They go to the reception and they feed cake to each other. They intertwine their arms to drink champagne or punch or may even drink out of the same cup. There's a lot of significance in a marriage ceremony that sometimes slides by because we make fun. But it also reminds us of Jesus' statement, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my disciple. In 1 Samuel 18, we read where Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. 
Jonathan took off the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and his sword and his bow and his belt. If you look at the things that Jonathan gave to David, basically he stripped himself naked. And by implication, David did the same. It resulted in David wearing significant items that were recognizable as belonging to the prince that made him recognizable on the streets as someone who enjoyed the protection of the royal household. And likewise, Jonathan wore the gear and garments of a shepherd to indicate the unity between these two men. Well, you see, we've also entered into a covenant with someone who is far greater than we are, God himself. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. He was sacrificed and broken for us. And he has become the meal that we consume. You see, we wear his robe of righteousness. And he has taken our garment of sin and borne it to the cross. He's taken all of our sin and he's died our death. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I live, but Christ liveth in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He granted us a blank check. We share in his righteousness. We share in the riches of his glory. We're seated in heavenly places. And in return, we're pledging something to him. We are called to give him a blank check in our lives. It involves much more than saying, thank you for saving me. Now I'm going to heaven and I can live my life like I want to. Or, well, now I promise I'm going to be in church every Sunday. Or maybe I'll even go the extra mile and try and make it to Sunday school sometimes. You see, it's even more than serving as a teacher or a deacon or an elder. It's more than giving 10% of your income. It's more than hosting a missionary in your home. Paul tells us in Romans 12:1 that we are to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, because this is your spiritual worship. You see, Jesus asks two questions of us, and just two. Do you believe I am God? And if your answer is yes, then why don't you do what I tell you to do? His final command was to preach the gospel to every living creature on the face of the earth. Do you realize there are almost 8 billion people in the world today? And over 600 people groups that have never heard the name of Jesus. Millions of them are dying every year without ever hearing the gospel. And some of those lost people are right here in Portalis. To take the gospel to a new people group often means a violent death. Yesterday was the 55th anniversary of the death of Jim Elliott and his co-workers who were killed in Ecuador by the Aka Indians. And their blood was actually the seed that eventually missionaries went back to those same men. They became Christians. 
Again, Paul tells us in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, as we eat the cracker and drink the juice... We're drinking much more than emblems. We're renewing our covenant promises to give him a blank check in our lives. Knowing that he in turn has the freedom to call us to go to unsafe places. To do his bidding. To use our resources and our time differently than we might have thought we would. To use our talents in unexpected ways. So, If we're not willing to give him that freedom in our lives this morning, then I urge you to take it very seriously whether or not you partake of the emblems. Father, we are humbled beyond belief that you have chosen to make a covenant with us, that you would come, live among us, and bear our sin to the cross. And we acknowledge, Father, that we owe you are full of allegiance and obedience. Father, forgive us when we fail that and when we go our own way. And give us the strength and the encouragement and empower us to do your will in our lives. Father, thank you for leaving these emblems and this memorial feast for us as a reminder. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. It was my first preaching position, and I wanted to make a good point. I'd worked on a sermon on prayer, and I got this great idea for an illustration. I was going to have a little audience participation time in my little sermon in my little country church. So I was going to talk about prayer, and here was my question. My question was, what word do you think we use the most in our prayer life? In, in our prayers. Now, I'll tell you what I was looking for. I was hoping for a little banter. You know, here's a few words. Here's, a, And I was going to come up with the word help. Help us, God. Help me. Help. That was my point. I was going to get it so, you know, our prayers are always me-centered and focused on us. And that was going to be the ser- big sermon. So I asked this big question, what word do we use most in our prayers? And an older gentleman from the back went, Amen kind of blew my point really bad, and I really didn't have much of a sermon after that. But it really bears a lot into what we're doing right now, a people of prayer. That's what we're focusing on for the month of January. And I want us to talk about 
how we pray. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11 today. It's not on the screen, but join us in Luke 11. We referenced it last week. If you're on the radio or in the uh, or on online, we're glad you're with us here at Central Christian. You're in the building with us. Uh, we are thrilled. I want to talk about our formats of prayer. Last week we talked about why we should pray. I don't think that's really a hard challenge, but I wonder how often we talk about how we should pray. Let's talk about the hows. Join me in chapter 11 of the book of Luke. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, as he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the food we need and forgive us our sins and forgive those who sin against us. Don't lead us into, don't let us yield to temptation. Most of you reference and recognize that as the Lord's Prayer. Now, I wanted to read it in this version because it reads a little differently, specifically, Father, may your name be kept holy. But join me, keep going. In verse 5, we're continuing here. Then, teaching them more about prayer, he used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight, wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit, and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me, the door is locked for the night, and my family and I are all in bed, I can't help you. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he'll get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. In verse 9, so I tell you, keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Let me ask you a question. How much of our prayer life is rote memory? We repeat phrases that we've heard, formats that we've heard. There's nothing wrong with that. We just do what we've seen modeled. And I'll tell you a secret. If we listen to your prayers for a little while... I can usually tell you your denominational background. You're laughing, but you know it's true. Baptists have certain phrases. Church Christ has certain phrases. Methodists have certain phrases that you just grew up hearing, okay? There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's actually even biblical. I want you to look at at verse 1 of chapter 11. I read this passage dozens of times this week, and it was late this week that something jumped off the page. I usually start this passage with the guy asking Jesus, teach us how to pray. But listen to how it starts. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, as he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. One of, one of the disciples, we don't know which one, it's not named, He saw him praying. And that's where the question of the Lord's prayer comes from. I think that's kind of unique. It's not that he came up with, all right, here it is, time now. 
It is that these guys that were close to Jesus were watching him and listening to him. And they, they heard that. And they said, I want some of that. Which leads me to another question. Who do you know that prays well? Who do you know that has a good habit of prayer and, and sounds, you know, really encourages you when you pray? I love what Jennifer is doing down in our kid zone. And uh, she works so hard. We've got great people that serve down there. But they're doing prayer down there while we're studying prayer here, while our ladies' class is doing it, while AMP is doing it. Every, all of us are focusing on prayer. And Jennifer was telling last week that some of them were a little nervous. I don't know how to pray. What, do I, what if I say it wrong? What if I do it wrong? What if I don't know what to say? That's fine. That's totally fine. And she was very transparent in saying, I stumble on it too and I get scared too. Look, we all know we should pray. That's not really a hard given. But do we ever talk about how? Most of us probably started in our homes with, as, as children, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord, you know, something like that. Or at the meals, God is great, God is good, and let us thank Him for our food. I love those. I am thrilled with those. I am in no way making fun. I am encouraging that. If you're not doing that with your littles, get them in the habit of praying, even if it's a rote memory prayer. I love that because it is the habit of being in the presence of God. It's one of my favorite pictures of all time. It is a picture of JFK and JFK Jr., and it is, for lack of a better term, iconic. Most of you, if you've ever followed JFK, you recognize this picture, but you may not know the story behind this picture. The rest of this story really starts with that kid down at the bottom, JFK Jr., was probably one of the first kids in the White House in over 80 years. Up until John F. Kennedy, most of the presidents were in their 60s and 70s, so they didn't really have littles. Actually, Jackie was pregnant when, J- when, when he was campaigning. So there was littles. There were diapers in the White House. I mean, this is, whoa, all right? And, and Jackie was fiercely protective of her kids. She did not want them pictured. But in this particular photo, Jackie is out of the country on a goodwill visit. And... John Kennedy had hired during his campaign and become really good friends with a photographer named Alan Tredick. He was a photographer for Look Magazine, and he, had, he, would, he actually followed the campaign, so they got to be friends. And that particular week, he invited him to the White House to just take some pictures and hang out and have sandwiches and just be. And so he had his camera, and he caught this absolutely incredible image. Now... It goes even further. JFK Jr. is under what is called the Resolute Desk. Now, if you've ever seen National Treasure, you know the Resolute Desk is is very historical. Queen Victoria gave this desk to President Rutherford B. Hayes. It's, it's almost 200 years old, solid oak. It is absolutely, you know, it, it's important. This thing is huge, and it it has signed declarations of war. It has signed uh, many, many letters to parents of, of people that have been killed. Laws have been made on that in that Oval Office, on that Resolute Desk, but there's a problem here. That kid is not playing in the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office. You know what he's doing? He's playing at the foot of his dad. 
He is not in the least overwhelmed at what he is doing, at the, at the, at the epicness of what is going on there. He's just playing at the foot of his dad. That's why this picture is so incredible to me. You see, the apostle saw Jesus being personal with his father. In the Jewish world of that time, prayer was based on your actions, on your accomplishments. Did you go to temple? If you didn't go to temple enough, you shouldn't be able to pray for certain things. But Jesus spoke with a tone, a very personal tone, an attachment to God. Notice in verse 11, he starts talking to the dads. If your kid asks you for a fish, would you give him a snake? If he asks for breakfast, would you give him a scorpion? Oh, good grief, no. Every dad wants to give good things to their kids. Our Heavenly Father wants good things for His kids. He wants them just to play at His feet. And maybe that's one of the great lessons of prayer. The key to an active prayer life is alignment. It's not what we get. Reading between the lines of the Lord, what we call the Lord's Prayer there in Luke 11 uh, is, is really about our posture, our Father in heaven. It is, it is directing how we direct our prayers. I read this this week, uh, and it said there are three stages of prayer. You pray at God, you pray to God, and you pray with God. And I thought it was interesting, and I was trying to figure out what it meant. You pray at God, and, it's, and frequently when you're praying at God, there is a sense of pride. There is a, an anger in us. David did it. David did it lots of times in the Psalms. God, I'm mad. Why don't you strike these people down? Job did it. Uh, lots of people did it. But then you move to, instead of praying at God, you pray to God. And that is more of a, a moment of faith where I stop and I go, but I want to pray and here are my requests. And then you move from there to praying with God. Getting to a place of love and, and hope. I'm afraid way too often our prayers, in our prayers, we're tempted to say, Lord, bless my plans. Yeah, I, I got all this stuff to do this week. Bless my plans. I, I'm trying to find this job. Bless my plan. I, we need a relationship. With, you know, I'm single. I need a relationship. Bless this. I want, I want money. I need a job. I need, I need our finances fixed. Bless our plans. When really we need to be praying with God, Lord, let me be a part of your plan. You realize God's plans will always happen. Sometimes they happen in spite of humans, not because of them, right? So God's stuff is going to get done. We need to align ourselves with Him. And have you ever wondered where we got the in Jesus' name, amen, you know, the, the official ending of the prayer? You know how you're having a conversation with somebody and it starts to, okay, all right, I'll talk to you later, have a great day, see you, bye. You know, it kind of winds down. That's a prayer. That's how it winds down. Have you ever been in one of those public places where somebody reads this big official prayer and then just says amen and doesn't say in Jesus' name? You didn't do it right. Uh, hey, the little hairs on the back of my neck go, you didn't say that right. Where did we get that from? I'll tell you where. In John chapter 14, verse 13, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. When we finish a prayer within Jesus' name, it is a reminder that, 
that we access Almighty God through the power of our brother Jesus. And we need to be reminded of that. Not just in a casual ending of a prayer, but we pray in Jesus' name. But this week I learned about Julian of Norwich. She was a 14th century English anchoress. I had no idea what that was, so I started Googling and trying to figure out what an anchoress is. An anchoress is somebody that was a, a nun or a monk that kicked it up a notch. Okay, um, We've heard of monks that have lived in solitary. An anchoress or an anchorage was a person that walled themselves into a cell and lived the rest of their life in solitary confinement of their own. She was an anchoress in England, in rural Norwich, England, and she walled herself into a cell. And she was fed through a slot in the wall, and she wrote, and she was completely silent for the rest of her life. And she wrote out her prayers, she wrote out things, but she wrote out something that was really interesting. She completed all of her writings and all of her prayers with this phrase, and this I ask without condition. Wow, that was an interesting way to end a prayer. And this I ask without condition. It's that sentence that gave power to her prayers because she was aligned with God. Too often our agenda is hindering our prayer life. And I want us to have an active prayer life. Now, friends, I'm not going to lie to you. There are tons of books out there, How to Pray. We were in Barnes and Noble a couple of weeks ago. I looked, gobs of books. Just for grins this week, I got on Amazon and just typed in books, how to pray. I got over 2,000 hits. I got on Apple Podcasts, how to pray. I got over 600 hits. There's tons of stuff on there, how to pray. But the more I started looking at it, the more I saw that they tended to make, and a lot of these books tended to make it a formula. A formula prayer. Pray this way to get your prayers to work. Friends, you need to understand this. There is, no, there is no formula for getting God to do what you want Him to do. It's not there. You can keep looking. I'm going to save you some time. It's not there. Now, I will tell you, in church circles, we go to Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. We have used that verse well. It's a gorgeous verse. We've used it many times when we talked about revival in our community and revival in our country. Things are bad in our culture. Everything's terrible. We need to change it. So we pray that prayer. We, we read that and we put it on a sign and we, we make it our, our calling card. But the problem with that is we miss the very first line. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Get out of our own way. The first step in our prayer life is to kneel, to get aligned with God. You heard us sing, I've seen you move, move the mountains. What if the mountain that needs to be moved is you? You ever wondered that? What if the problems that you're dealing with are you? And the reason your prayer life doesn't light you up is because the mountain in the way is you. Maybe you need a little help getting started with your prayer life. And that's why I wanted to talk about today is it's really not as much a preaching as it is kind of a teaching. How many of you grew up with this acronym, uh, learning prayer with, with this acronym, ACTS? 
uh, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Anybody recognize this? Quite a few of us grew up with this kind of a, a prayer format, not a formula, a format. Hey, how many of you have ever been in a situation where you're just like, I don't even know what to pray? You ever been there? Or you're just like, uh, hi, God, uh, how's the weather up there? You know, you're just, you're just stuck. Well, this one was learned by a lot of us. This is a format to our prayers. You start your prayers with adoring God, putting Him in the proper position, adoration, and then it's confession. It's not just this blanket, forgive us of all of our sins stuff. It's really being honest. Where have you blown it? And then comes a time of thanksgiving. And, and God, just thank you for the many ways that you bless us, not just for this day and for the weather, but for your grace and your mercy. And that we finish with supplication or surrender. That's where our prayer list comes into. We, we put it under his supply and we are allowing him to be God. This is a fantastic format for prayer. It's not a formula. It is just a reminder. If we're going to be a people of prayer, then we need to have good habits of prayer. I ran into another one this week by a guy named St. Ignatius of Loyola. He was a 16th century Jesuit priest, and he wrote what is called the Ignatian Examen. Now, if you pronounce that that last word up there, examine, I'd be okay with that, because it's a way to examine our prayer life. Now, what he did was he wrote this with the the, uh, premise. He said, we need ways to be better prayers. And so this was to be done in short, short times, 15 minutes tops, and it was to be done twice a day, once at lunch and once at bedtime. This was his format to help you pray. And these are the five steps of this time of prayer. And think about this for a second. At lunchtime and at the end of the day. How many of you have a rough morning and everything's all frustrated and you're just, uh, How many of you could use a reset time at lunchtime? I think that's pretty powerful. And listen to the five steps he says. Uh, First, you relish the good. Ask God to reveal the good graces he has given you that morning or that afternoon. And then you request the Spirit. Ask that we be filled with the Spirit as we pray and as we serve. The third one is to review the day. You know what? We need to linger over some parts of our day that have been good, and we need to let some of them go. How good would that be at lunchtime (laughs) to really, really, you know what, let's flush this morning. Let's start all over after lunch. Let's go good. And then the fourth one is repent from wrongs. Look at my attitudes. Look at my words. What have I said this morning or this afternoon that could be done better? And finish with a resolve for tomorrow. Show me how I can serve him. Uh, Ignatius said that prayer should be the... The, the springboard to service. All of these are to lead me into serving other people. It is not a formula. It's just an outline to keep your prayer life fresh. I want us to be a people of prayer. So I want us to have good habits of prayer. What about some prayer activities that we could do? Here are a few prayer activities you could do during the week. You could go on a prayer walk. Now some of you may well, what's a prayer walk? That's where you or another, you and another person, just two at most, where you go on a walk around your neighborhood and you pray for the houses that you walk by. Out loud, praying for your neighborhoods, 
praying for their kids or their, their families or whatever's going on in their life. And you pray and you find out what is going on in your neighborhood and you become a good neighbor. Secondly, you pray for somebody that doesn't know Jesus. And I'm not talking one of these blanket prayers for everybody all over the globe. I'm talking about people in your circle, in your sphere. Maybe it's a work circle. Maybe it's family members that you know don't know Jesus or you're not sure if they know Jesus. So you start praying about that and you start praying, God, open doors that we can talk to them about Jesus. Another thing you can do is pray out loud with another person from church. Not somebody from your house, somebody from church. Meet for a cup of coffee. Let's just meet and pray. Or fourth, park at a church and pray for it. I had a friend message me recently and said that they park outside of our building out in the parking lot right by that big cross and just let out a lot of worries and a lot of fears and just leave them at the foot of the cross. That's fantastic. Maybe you want to do that. Why couldn't you do that at other churches in our community? Why couldn't we, as the body of Christ, park on other church parking lots and pray and lift them up? We're praying for everybody at this church that attends here so that we could be the unified body of Christ in the community of Portales. Amen? Or what if you join us for prayer furnace? Prayer furnace is something that Franklin does on Thursdays at noon. It's right here in this auditorium. It's about 30 minutes long. And... And we play some soft music. We have soft music playing. We go over prayer requests. We do it live on Facebook. You're welcome to join us. If you can't get here, you could do it on Facebook. I'm going to encourage you to fast for 30 minutes, not worrying about lunch, but just spend that time in, in time of prayer. You see, these are prayer activities. I'm challenging you, all of you, to do at least one of these this week. Maybe you do all five of them. I don't care. But you find times to be a people of prayer. Not just because it's the thing we're doing in January, but because we want to see those things happen. And I want to encourage you to watch out for phrases in your prayers. We have phrases in our prayers that sound like this. Bless me. Be with me. Watch over me and protect me. And forgive me. In and of themselves, those phrases are not wrong. We need to pray for God's blessing and pray for God's protection. But did you hear how it sounds when you line them all up together? There's a lot of me in there. And it can point out a problem in our prayer life. Sometimes our prayer life is very me-focused. Sometimes our faith is very me-focused. What do I want? What do I get? How does it affect me? That's really away from what God has called us to do, what Scott said. Are you willing to feel pain for Jesus? Are you willing to bleed? Is the mountain that needs to be moved you? If you've been here at Central any amount of time, you know how much I like and love reading about the prayer revivals of the 1800s, the Great Awakenings, and I'm, I'm moved by uh, the Great Awakenings. In September 1857, it's, so, it's said that in New York City, a tall man with a pleasant face and a kind manner began to pass out handbills. His name was Jeremiah Lamphere. He had been converted to Christianity by a great preacher named Charles Finney in 1835, and he started working... Uh, for the North Church as a street evangelist. They paid him like a dollar a week. And he, he was an accountant by trade. And he would work and then he would go out on the street and he would just try to pray over people and invite people to church. And he wasn't getting anything done. So he's 
comes up with this idea. He says, I want to have a prayer meeting at the church. So he picks out this date, and for two or three weeks, he just passes out handbills. Wednesday at noon at the church, we're going to pray. Please come. We'll pray with you. We'll pray over you. That Wednesday comes. He's passed out all these bills. He opens the door. Exactly zero showed up. Not a soul. But he kept passing out the handbills, and the next week, six people showed up. And the next week, 18 people showed up. In the fourth week, 30 people showed up. And one of the guys says, I don't know that we should wait all the way until next Wednesday. Is there any way we could meet here tomorrow? And thus began what we know as the Great Awakening. It started daily. And within six months, all over New York City, there was 50,000 people praying every day at lunch. It was amazing. And hearing the stories of, of people that, that uh, they left there and they went to Philadelphia and they went to Cleveland all the way to a businessman in Omaha had heard about it. And so he took the train and stopped every city trying to find prayer meetings. And he got all the way to New York and heard about it. They were, they were praying with people. It was so impactful in the community that one particular day at 1145, a business merchant was trying to finish a deal and he said, I'm sorry, we're going to have to close up. I have a lunch meeting. And, and the businessman was from out of town. He said, I want to buy all these goods. I need to make the 2 o'clock ferry. It's very, very important. We've got to go. I just skip lunch. I'll pay you extra to skip lunch. And the guy says, no, you don't understand. This is way more important than money. In fact, you need to go with me. And he took him to this lunch prayer meeting, and they led him to Jesus. He came back, finished, got on his, his ferry, went home, and started a prayer meeting where he was at. Because people were praying up to a million conversions in 19 months. That's 10,000 a week, all driven by prayer. I shared with you last week a book uh, by a guy named Leonard Ravenhill that the title is, is powerful. The title is called Why Revival Tarries. That's, that's enough of the book that right there for you is why revival tarries. And Ravenhill goes on to say, and he talks about revival. And I got to tell you, how many times in the last couple of years have I heard people saying, we need revival in our town. We need a, a change in our culture. We need our country saved. And, and we, can, we can show you in history, never once has a revival happened by plan. It has never happened because you started a program. It's never once happened because politics got so bad. It's never even happened because we pleaded for revival. Every single spiritual revival in our country has happened because of prayer. That has been the source of it every single time. Will you speak Jesus? Will you pray Jesus over our community? Friends, we're calling this a people of prayer because we want to see revival. This is not some just fancy new program or anything like that. No, it has nothing to do with that. It is, I want us to be inspired to see the beauty of prayer and what a powerful tool prayer has. When you see these videos, whether it's Bree talking about moms or Reagan Cox or or. Uh, Pat Yeager talking about revival or Cody talking about our first responders. When you see them, comment on them, share them, take time to pray over them. You see, a people that wants to see neighbors come to Jesus is going to be a people of prayer. A people that wants teachers encouraged, 
People that want first responders lifted up are people that pray. And a church that wants marriages strengthened and depression and addiction defeated are a people of prayer. Let's be that people for our community, for Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we adore you because you are worthy of adoration. We confess to you many times, Father, we have made our agenda way more important than yours. What we want should be what you want. So teach us to seek your heart. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for sunshine. Thank you for family. Thank you for this group here. Thank you for every person listening online. We surrender to you their their lives, their hearts, their hopes. Because your name is power. Your name is healing. For people that need healing, we pray your name. For people that need hope, that are broken. For people that are overwhelmed with debt and struggle. For people that deal with chronic pain. Your name is life. May we speak you. We praise you. We adore you. We give you glory. Through the name of our brother and Savior Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.